For the last 30 years, uh, the analysis of Christian thinkers and writers has been uh, sooner or later, in a very short time, America will become what they call a post-Christian nation. Here's what that means. From our founding, you know, we, there's no such thing as a Christian nation, right? Peter writes here, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So there are, there are no nations that are holy. There was only ever one nation God called, and that was the nation of Israel. So uh, we are the people of God spread throughout the world. However, the history of the United States is we have been heavily influenced by the Bible, uh, by the Ten Commandments, by preaching, by churches. We are still a secular nation. People came here for God and money. Let's be clear about that. Uh, but certainly it has been influenced by Scripture. Uh, but writers will say, you know, look at what's happened in Europe. We're about 80 years behind them. They're these grand cathedrals and these wonderful pulpits with preachers. And, and, and as they colonized the world, uh, missionaries went on the back of that. And if you travel to Africa or India or a lot of places today, you'll see the fruit of what Europe produced. And yet you go to Europe today and all the cathedrals are empty. The pulpits are not filled. And again, it's secular and they're saying, we're going to go the way of Europe. Then they look at our culture and they say, well, there's some other reasons. Number one, prosperity. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants. Many who came from other countries were blue collar workers. Uh, they wanted their kids to do better than them, sent them to universities. And the idea is when you become more prosperous and educated, you don't need God. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's what they say. They'll look at the migration to cities, right? Which are more liberal more transient, more ethnic. Uh, and then there are the grim statistics. People are ha having less kids. When you have more money, you have less kids. Uh, Christians have more kids, but even those kids, three-fourths of them are leaving the church by age 23. And then there's a brand new category, right? So we all live in the world of Barna and Gallup, so there's categories for all of us, in case you didn't know that. Advertisers buy that information that's why when you're on the phone, all those pop-ups come up. They know exactly your buying taste. So, so in the religious world, there's a new category called nuns. Now, this isn't your third grade teacher with a black habit. Okay, this is N-O-N-E-S. So before, you would say to someone, even if they weren't practicing, what religion are you? And they would usually give a Christian denomination. I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, I'm Episcopalian. There are people now that answer none. I was raised on Sunday morning cartoons or we went to brunch or we golfed on Sunday. And so they'll look at that quarter category and then they'll talk about the aging of the church, right? A lot of our church leaders, power church ministries are aging. And so we're destined for this doom of becoming a post-Christian nation. Now, it has not happened yet. All the data tells us that church attendance, though flat, has been pretty consistent the last 35 years. We've seen the rise of the megachurch, which is a new phenomenon. And if you look at Christian books and movies and music, we now have our products in Barnes & Noble and the multiplex. You could argue we're having more reach into the culture, more influence than ever, the Eagles win the Super Bowl, 22 of them are believers. It's hard to turn on any sporting event where somebody's not giving glory to God. So uh, God's alive and well in America. That's not the point of what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's the point. When Peter writes 1 Peter in the first century, he's writing to people, verse 1, chapter 1, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. He calls them pilgrims and sojourners. I've, I've fancied to the word exiles. 
An exile is someone who comes from one country but lives in another country. And what Peter is saying, no matter where you live, whether it's friendly to the gospel or not friendly to the gospel, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we take our cues. That's where we're going one day. We are pilgrims. We're like Abraham holding on very loosely and traveling very lightly in this world because one day we're going to leave it all behind. But the question is, how do we live? How do we live in the world? How, how do we become ambassadors of the place we've been exiled from? That's what 1 Peter's all about. And Peter's writing, get this, to a pre-Christian nation, right? We know the history of Rome. We know what happened. Rome fell within Rome became Christian, if we can use that word, but Peter's writing to people who were under the heel of Rome. Rome was led by Nero. It was tyranny. It was pagan. No Bibles, no bookstores, no Billy Graham crusades, and yet Peter is writing to say that these Christians could thrive in this empire. That as exiles, they could not only thrive, but they could influence culture. Now, as it comes down to you and me, here's the idea. It doesn't matter where we've been born, we can bloom where we're planted. We can glorify God, which is the chief end of man, and we can influence people around us. Peter tells us, very clear, chapter 4, we'll look at it next time, trials are coming our way, right? He says, don't think it a strange thing when the fiery trial comes as though it were a strange thing. He used the word strange twice and the word trial once. Do you know why? Class, do you know why? Because every time a trial comes into a Christian's life, no matter how long they walk with God, they always think it's strange. You know, why did my hot water heater blow? Because I love God and I give into the offering and I go on missions trips. You know, why can't I find a boyfriend? Why, why God, why, 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 no. Peter said, trials are coming your way. Persecution's coming your way. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Um, and injustice will always be part of a fallen world. But I want you to picture Peter as a life coach this morning. It's very popular to have a life coach today. Peter, a fisherman, he'll be our life coach. Help us to navigate living for Christ in a Christ-rejecting world. And I want to begin in chapter 2, verse 9 where he tells us we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people who were once not a people. But here's verse 11, beloved, in light of that, here's very practical. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts, notice, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the pagans or the Gentiles, that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God. This is a fascinating verse. In the day of visitation. Now Peter's a fisherman, right? Blue collar guy. Yet he stands up on the day of Pentecost and he's quoting from Joel and scripture. Second Peter, I mean, unbelievable when he begins to write about the day of the Lord. We have a fisherman telling us how the world's going to end. And Peter writes about our day. He said, the day's coming when skeptics, scoffers will come along and say, where's the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. He gave us all these promises. He's returning quickly. Where is he? Here's what happened. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. That's evolution, guys. That's the anthropic principle. That's, that's, that's the idea that, you know, like, 
laws are in continual motion. There is no God. Peter said that would be the line and the reasoning of the day. Natural selection. Scientific arguments. And Peter said, here's what they forget. And he said they willfully forget it. That there was a time when God stepped in human history in Noah's day where God told Noah to build an ark and God judged the world through a flood. And just as he stepped into human history that day, there is a day called the day of the Lord where he will step into history once again. And there will be a judgment. And that's the book of Revelation. Hebrews says it's appointed for every human being to die once and then the judgment. Don't bank on reincarnation. Don't bank on coming back again. Don't bank on good works outweighing bad works. The judgment. And Peter tells him here, hold on. There is a day of recompense coming. Now, until that day, how do we live? If Peter could write a book, it would be called How to Glorify God and Influence People. Not Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. How to Glorify God and Influence People. If it was only about salvation, God would have took you home. He would have raptured you the day you became a believer. But he left us here to be a city on a hill, to be salt and light, to be preservative. How now shall we live? And he says, abstain from fleshly lust and make sure your conduct is honorable among the Gentiles. Now, I went to Catholic school and when we got our grades, we had English and penmanship, and, and we had two categories. One was effort, and the other was conduct. I almost failed conduct, by the way. You talk about special needs. Um, what is conduct? It's lifestyle. What is our lifestyle? Does it matter? You know, I hear believers say this all the time, and I've yet to find a Bible verse. Well, you know... God knows I'm human, so, and then they give me a tale of woe. Well, God knows I'm human. Well, I still can't find that verse. You see, the Bible says that we're shooting higher than that, that our lives are hitting Christ, that, that, that there's the all-sufficiency of Christ. The, the bar is way higher than that, and then when we fail, there's confession, there's grace, there's wonderful restoration. I mean, that's Peter's story. But setting the bar like God knows I'm human is, is really not biblical. It's quite sad. Lifestyle. What is a lifestyle that honors God? Let me read to you from Ephesians. Just, just listen to this. It's chapter 2. It says, you, if, you're, if, if you've been born again, you were made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. There was an old you, there's a new you in which you once walked, that's the biblical term for lifestyle, the, you know, you've heard of the Christian walk, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Peter in chapter one says, you did all that in ignorance. And that's what you were born into, right? You were born into a system where you climb the ladder of success, you get what's yours, you climb to the top, and that's where all the good stuff is, right? Uh, no fault of our own, we all did it in ignorance. Peter said it was aimless. And that's why the people that are getting to the top, it's not enough, and they're not fulfilled. 
There's a lifestyle that honors God. Now, I've got to give you one more verse. Chapter 1, verse 13. We looked at it last week. Again, it's the same phrasing. Do we not be conformed to the former lust? That was in ignorance. But as he who called you was holy, you should be holy in all your conduct. You should be holy rollers, right? That's what people call us. So what's it mean to be holy? Well, I've taught you this before. It means to be whole, right? To be pure. Um, the standard word we know is to be set apart. I want to add this. It means to be a set apart exclusively. Think of this. Uh, the closest illustration is marriage, okay? So there was a day where I fell passionately in love with Monica and she fell in love with me. And then we decided to get married. When we exchanged vows, here's what we said. We would be exclusively there for one another. In other words, I was exclusively hers, she was exclusively, exclusively mine. So for me, every other woman was off the table, right? For her, every other man. We were starting a journey together, a life together. There was something God had called us to. What that means in a marriage is this relationship becomes the center. Now, I still have friends. I still have guy friends, girlfriends. I still do activities without her. However, there's a give and take in our relationship so that our entity is singular because it's exclusive. And no one can ever get into that inner circle. No one will ever know what it's like except the two of us. That's what happened at conversion. When you gave your heart to Christ, you were exclusively his, and he was exclusively yours. Now, I was smart enough at 21 years old when I made a decision for Christ to know that my life would not be the same. I knew I slid over into the passenger seat, and God came down in the driver's seat. I was smart enough to know, even though I didn't know one verse in the Bible, that if God was real and he came into my life, he was about to chart a new course. And I knew life would change. I mean, the first couple of weeks, I'm at frat parties with a beer in my hand witnessing the people. I didn't know any better, right? Calvary Chapel and the Jesus Movement, guys that were leading worship were smoking joints in the back. They didn't know any better. Not happening here. Guarantee you. <laughs> Promise you. We'll send security out there to make sure. Um, but we start to grow. We start to understand there's, there's this setting apart unto God. And, and here's the rub. We're not good for goodness sake, right? That's a Santa Claus deal. And we're not good without God. That's legalism. Some of you came out of that. Be a little good boy or a little good girl, not for God, just because somebody gave you all these rules that somehow you thought would please God. I was a believer for a couple years, and we were invited by a couple we were very fond of to a home Bible study where we walked in and people were on the ground screaming and, and the preaching was harsh and it went on for hours. And we were part of this study for about a month. And to be honest, all my joy was leaking out. And I remember going down in the city, running you know, around Boathouse Row and I stopped and I said, God, you know, I gave my heart to you several years ago, but I can't do this. And I heard the voice of God as clear as I've ever heard it. And God said, you're right. You can't do it. And the next week I found Calvary Chapel and I understood grace. And tears came down my cheeks as I realized, no, Jesus paid it all. He's all sufficient. 
Wednesday nights, I'm leading a class called Goliath Must Fall. And almost every sermon we've ever heard about David and Goliath is you have to mount up like David and kill the giants in your life. And Lou Giglio wrote a book called Goliath Must Fall saying in the New Testament, we understand that Jesus is our David. That when he said it was finished, the Bible says he made an open spectacle of principalities and powers. He rendered Satan inoperative. He cut off the head of the giant for you and for me. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, that sounds good on Sunday, but on Tuesday, why do I struggle? Here's why. Aren't you glad you came today? It's worth the price of admission. The giant is dead, but he's still deadly. Does everybody understand that? That's a big idea. The giant is dead, but he's still deadly. Why? Lou Giglio gives an illustration that if you chop a snake's head off, and, and he learned this at camp, if you chop a snake's head off, three months later, the venom in the snake's mouth can still kill you. Peter is going to say later in this book that resist the devil, Satan like a roaring lion is seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I love the imagery of the roaring lion because Peter's in Rome and Christians are being sent to the lions. And because Satan's bark is louder than his bite. He's a roaring lion, but he's toothless. He roars in your ear and in my ear. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. You're not a good husband. You're not a good wife. Your kids are never going to mount to anything. I mean, lie after lie. Flesh, fleshly lust here, war against the soul. The word there, war, is where we get the word strategy. Satan has a strategy for everybody in this room. He lies to us in the ways he knows that are most effective. And Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain from them. They war against the soul. They enslave you to appetites. That's the way you used to live. But now we've been set apart to God. I love reading the Psalms because David and the other psalmists have this tremendous capacity for God. If you ever wonder how David, who committed murder and adultery, can be the man after God's own heart, read the Psalms. He never bowed to an idol. He had this amazing capacity for God. You know, he talks about, you know, the one thing I've desired of the Lord and I will seek with all my life is to dwell in the courts of the Lord, to behold the beauty. And he goes on and on and on. David understood that his soul was made for God. You're a soul and I'm a soul. When God created us, he breathed into us the breath of life. We became souls. We're different than everything else on the planet. We can think and feel and we have cognitive ability. We're creative. But when you're born again, the soul now can connect with God and it's vast. You know, there, there, there are no depths or capacity the soul can't get to. This is why I think desire, that's the word lust, that's why I think desire in the secular world is never ending. You know, people that have everything still want more, right? They want more beauty, more love, they want more money, more Mercedes, more YouTube videos, like it's never enough. They want more and more, why? Because I think God gave us the capacity for himself. One author said, this is the soul crying out, 
This is the soul's infinite capacity to desire in the mirror of the image of God. This is, this is a takeaway, guys, because it mirrors God's infinite capacity to give. See, when you read the Old Testament, you read about Israel, you know, God calls this nation, he gives them everything. He gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gives them his law. He gives them everything for life and beauty and wonder. And what do they do? They bow down to idols and they want to be like all the other nations. That's the sin under the sin, right? That's Idolatry is, is, is really the sin of the nation of Israel. And it breaks God's heart because God says, look, your idols, they have eyes and they can't see and they have ears and they can't hear. They have lips and they can't speak. God's saying, I have all this infinite wonder and the cattle on a thousand hills and you're bowing down to idols of stone? Now they weren't stupid. You have the same thing. It's just the emblems are different. Yours is Mercedes and Mont Blanc and every other thing that are in the great malls of America. The idols have, we just changed the picture a little bit. And God said, you're settling for this? This is what the heathen do. This is what they run after. This is what they think is going to fill their heart. You came out of this lifestyle. God told Jeremiah in chapter 2, he said, here's the conundrum. I have given my people living water. And they're over here building cisterns that hold no water. That first week I drew you that picture that there's a gap between the flow that God wants us to live in and what we settle for. And every day, God's saying, oh my gosh, if you ever knew the plans I have for you and the things I want to do for you. That's why C.S. Lewis's quote is so amazing, where he said, we are like little children, happy to make mud piles in the slum, because we have no idea what a vacation by the sea is like. Lewis said, our problem isn't that things aren't pleasing, but that we're too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased to settle for something far less than the grand experience and the grand flow of God's spirit that he has for us. And so Peter comes along and he says, abstain from fleshly lust that war against your soul. It'll never fill a soul. Do you guys realize as Christians, we have a very unique message you know, we've been trained, right? We've been trained by the dominant culture that, we're, that our message is outdated, it's silly, it's puritanical, right? Do you realize how revolutionary our message is? If I had time to write a book, and I don't, you know what book I would write? The Coming Sexual Revolution. Because I think we need a revolution. We had a revolution in the 60s that started with the birth control pill. And we said, look, now that we have a birth control pill, here's free sex. And Hugh Hefner was the preacher of that generation. Look where it's gotten us. I think we need another revolution. I think we should give people what the Bible says. Don't arouse or awaken love until it's time. Can you imagine if girls and boys heard that and saved themselves for the one person that would love them unconditionally? There'd be a revolution can you imagine the horror and the pain we would save people if we talked about abstinence until God brought the right person? We love purity everywhere else. The same people that say you're puritanical are running the Whole Foods. 
and they're recycling, except they don't know the recycler dumps everything in the same system. And that even the stuff at Whole Foods has parts per billion of roaches and et cetera, et cetera, and everything you're buying that you think is organic and you're paying double for. But we love purity in every other form. And Peter says, this is warring against your soul. Your soul was designed and built to commune with God. Lou Giglio brings out that when David slayed that giant, it wasn't so he would be a giant killer. He did it for the name of God of Israel. He knew God was with him and he did it for God's name. Our lifestyle should glorify the one that we're in relationship with. But there was a second point. It is, should also minister to those around us. Look what he says, that, that as they marked you as evildoers, and they were marked this way because Nero burnt Rome and blamed the Christians, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So when somebody in the day of judgment says, God, you didn't give me enough evidence, they're going to get a video of your life because you were their neighbor and their friend and someone who brought them to Calvary Chapel and opened a Bible for them. You were the hands and feet of Jesus. As, as Carol said, you were the ministers of mercy and grace to special needs kids. We are God's workmanship. We are his poems being read by all men. We are God's representatives. We are ambassadors. And Peter said, there's a world that's watching. Now, what should our conduct be? Watch what he goes on to say. Verse 13. Therefore, since that's true, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, to governors, to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God. Anybody come here today looking for the will of God? Anybody come here today looking for the will of God? Okay, all right? You know, the will of God that you have a Mercedes or get your killer job, right, is between you and God. But I'm gonna give you what's in black and white, okay? You wanna know the will of God? Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using freedom as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Doesn't say honor the king if he's Republican. Doesn't say honor the king if he's Democrat. It says honor the king. And that king, by the way, was Nero. And it says do it for the Lord's sake. Not because you like it, not because you agree with it. Do it for the Lord's sake. Because you know what it shows? He goes on to tell uh, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. He's going to tell masters, submit to your slaves. Slaves, submit to your masters. See, we've made submission the S word, right? I'm not going to submit to anybody, right? That's how people walk around today. You know, because you've been trained at Phillies games and Eagles games, you just saunter around whenever you want to, right? The truth is, someone under submission is someone who gets it because that's the way any normal system works. This is a military term. Can you imagine if everybody sauntered around the army 
and did what they wanted and got out of line. Any, you'd have no military, no schools, no doc. Life wouldn't exist. The ball teams you love are all in submission to a coach. I guarantee you when you find someone out of submission, they're out of, they're out of sync in their relationship with God. When someone can't submit to general authority, there's something wrong in their relationship with God because God's a God of order. And so Peter's saying here, look, this is how we're going to win people. There's 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. These slaves are treated rotten. But guess what? As a new community, you're going to honor one another. Husbands are going to love their wives. Wives are going to love their husbands. I've read a lot about Rome, and, uh, and I visited a lot of ruins, Roman ruins in Rome and in other places because they were all around the world. And the way the Romans lived, it's, it's still the same today in Egypt or a lot of Mediterranean countries where the, the weather's warm and there's not a lot of bugs. So their windows are just, you know, you know, you'd be in Egypt and you'll see apartment buildings with gutted out windows and you think, you know, no, nobody lives there. There's hundreds of thousands of people there. They just don't have windows or shutters like we do. So in ancient Rome, you would hear husbands and wives arguing, kids, you'd hear everything. And people write about this, that there was a phenomenon that the Christians loved their kids, treated their slaves well. People were watching this. And guess what happened to Rome? Fell from within. No standing army ever made its way into Rome, and it crumbled from within. Because God was doing what he's still doing today. He's changing lives one heart at a time. Billy Graham said there's no such thing as crusade evangelism. All you're looking at is one-on-one evangelism in a crowd. Someone brought someone. And God saved one heart at a time. And Christianity began to spread. And they began to see mercy and grace. And lives were transformed, and it was work of the Spirit, and there was revival. They saw there was something different about Christians. It goes on to say, we should all be in submission to one another. And this didn't just start with Jesus. You know, you look at the Old Testament. Proverbs 24 talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it, that when Israel were in foreign lands like Babylon, they were to obey and give to the general welfare of those countries. Think about Daniel. Think about other prophets who spent time in exile. Look at Romans 13 and even the words of Jesus, which Peter would have remembered, render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God what is God's. When that coin came out of the fish's mouth, he said, if Caesar wants your money, give it to Caesar. And the idea is if God wants your life, give God God your life. So there's something about our lifestyle that's meaningful and full of purpose. Now, there's always someone who wants to argue, yeah, Pastor Bob, does that mean we should follow Hitler? No, if I lived in the time of the Nazi regime, I would have hidden Jews. We see in the book of Acts, Peter and John said, look, we follow the laws of the land until they tell us to do something God has not told us to do. But generally, this is the rule of thumb, and this is the will of God that by doing good, you put to shame the deeds of evil men. And and as we close, I want to hang on that word good, because we sang songs about good, and and, and we know that, that, you know, goodness isn't getting us to heaven. We know that because of faith, God is working good things in us. And, And here's why we're good. 
We're good because God is good. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus, no one can do what you're doing unless God would be with him? Then another time someone said, uh, you must be good because no one can do these works. And Jesus said, only God is good. What he was saying is he was God. And we sang that today, God is good, but I think, I think we've skewed what that means because we think being good is kind of being like that nice little boy or girl, a goody two-shoes. The word good means beautiful, attractive, useful, profitable, morally right. That's the encyclopedia of Bible knowledge. The idea of being good means you're acting in accordance with the way you were designed. Does that make sense? I love those latter chapters of Job where, where God begins to talk about the, the ostrich and the horse and the rider and, and these, these animals that live out in the desert that we never see. We see them now in zoos, but the idea was they give God glory because they, they perform the way they were designed. And if you look at the anthropic principle, that the fine-tuning of the universe, everything acts in accordance with the way God designed it. The sun comes up, it sets, uh, Everything gives God glory that way, and we were designed for a purpose. Peter's going to write here about our old life, uh, one more chapter, drinking parties and revelries. and uh, We weren't designed for that. God didn't put you on this planet to be a consumer, to gorge yourself. He put you on this planet because you're made in his image, and you're here to make a difference. And there's purpose to mirror his goodness. What did God say every day of his work? It's good. It's good. He evaluated it's good. It's the same thing with you and I. We were created for good works in Christ. C.S. Lewis said the Christian does not think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And it's the way we were designed. Paul told the Colossians, as you accepted Christ Jesus, your Lord, and the problem in the Western church is it's too much Savior. We think we did God a favor by acknowledging that he was the Christ. As you accepted Christ Jesus, your Lord, you must continue to follow him. This is the New Living Translation. Let your roots grow deep into him and let your lives be built on him. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now, I shared this last week, and because not everybody's here every week, I'll share it again. And it's really a great illustration. And I said last week, there's a reason why your windshield is bigger than your rearview mirror. Because we were meant to look forward, not backwards. Now, every once in a while, you got to look in the rearview mirror. Every once in a while, it will do you good to look at yourself in the rearview mirror and just picture the words grace on the rearview mirror. As you look at the old life, remember, God covered it by his grace. Can you imagine Peter looking in the rearview mirror? Matthew, Luke, give us tremendous accounts of the last, and John especially, of not only the Passover, but the last week of Jesus' life. Peter skates over most of it in five verses. Do you know why? It's not very flattering to him. Because the night they were in the upper room, Jesus said, you're all going to betray me. Every one of them said, not I, not I, not I. Of course, Peter had to embellish, right? He said, 
not I. In fact, I'm going to die with you. I'm going to get up on the cross with you. <laughs> Jesus said, Peter, he said, I tell you right now, before this night's over, the cock will crow three times. You will have denied me three times. This is a guy that's going to get up on a cross twice to a little girl and the third time cussing like a sailor, denies Christ. And then they go to the garden. And Jesus, in his humility and in his manhood, where he's about to drink of the wrath of Almighty God, the cup that he wants to pass, you know what he says to Peter, James, and John? I need a friend. He had gone to that garden many times to be alone. We'll be there in a few weeks. Olive trees, Gethsemane means the press, the pressing of olives. Jesus sweating great drops of blood. And as a man, he said, guys, I need a friend. And three times, Peter sleeping. Could you not tarry, Peter? Then when they come to arrest him, he cuts off the guy's ear. Then denies him three times. That's Peter's rearview mirror. But in that rearview mirror, he understands something about grace. That grace is the fuel that not only saves us, but that keeps us going. Peter didn't say, oh, I'm human. So I denied you. No, he shot higher than that. And he understands now how valuable and how big God's grace is. You know, the interesting thing about God is that he could be trusted. Many people don't think about this. Secular people think that we're blindly leaping in the dark, following God. God can be trusted. Think of the life of Peter. Jesus comes along and he says, Peter, drop your nets. You're going to fish for men. Think about it. Peter's a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman. His dad before him. They had built this lucrative business. You know why Peter could trust Jesus? Because on several occasions when he had fished all night and caught nothing, Jesus said, hey, throw it on the other side. Professional fishermen caught nothing and an itinerant rabbi saying, hey, why don't you throw it on the other side at a time where fish are really sleeping? And we all know a great haul of fish comes in. Peter says, I'm a sinful man. You know what Jesus was telling him? Peter, if it's about money, I'll do this all day. If you're worried about a living, I'll make fish come in that net all day. And Peter thought, I can give my life to this guy. Day of Pentecost, the nets were full. 3,000 were saved. 5,000 were saved. How many were saved off of this letter? Statues in Rome. His name known through the centuries. Jeremiah said, I know my plans for you, plans of goodness to bring you to an expected end. God can be trusted. He can be trusted with our lives. And Peter said, get as far away from the old life as you can. You did it in ignorance. And now I've given you a brand new life. And I've given you my word. You've got the book of Proverbs that tells you how to live practically. You have the book of Romans that tells you who you are in Christ. You have Ephesians, which takes you into the heavenlies. You have the book of 1 John that tells you you're forgiven. You have the gospels from four different men to give you four different shades of my grace. You have the book of Revelation that tells you I'm coming again. You have everything for life and godliness. So make your lifestyle honorable and let it glorify God. And along the way, you will influence men with the gospel of Christ. Because one day, we're leaving. And one day, we'll be known 
as only God can know us. But while we're here, God said, I need you. You're salt, you're light. The saddest thing there could ever be is someone who has tasted of the heavenly gift, has partaken of the good things to come, and goes back and lives in ignorance, like a dog returns to his vomit. Or, as Jesus said, the Sardis would soil their garments. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, I have better things concerning you. I believe that's not you. I believe you are those who have the capacity to serve God and long to drink of the fountain of living water. 